So for our main message this afternoon, we're going to hear from Mr. Ron Dart. Good afternoon again, everyone. I get the chance to be with you again today because Mr. Armstrong decided to stay over in California. Uh, he actually expected to be back by today, but uh, he caught a cold, and he knew he couldn't speak if he got back anyway. His voice was gone, and uh, he still had some investigation to do on, on a pair of possible locations for a uh, West Coast feast site. So he's up looking at a couple of little places up in the Big Sur country and uh, moving up the California coast. Uh, we'll look, be looking those over, I guess, tomorrow morning, and or at least may, may have gone up yesterday afternoon to look at them and should be back in town sometime tomorrow. We're looking forward to having him back. For those of you who might find this of some interest, we finished 1984 with a 19.3 increase over the previous year, which we felt was just pretty good. Now, we didn't have 19.3, though, the beginning of this year. We, uh, for the first week of 1985 against the first week of 1984, we had a 44% increase. And uh, so that's an awfully good way to start the year. In the stock market, they say the first week of the year is the bellwether for January, and January is the bellwether for the whole year. Well, I sure hope it works out that way for the work, uh, because if that's the case, we're going to have a very good year. And certainly there's no reason why we shouldn't, as far as the percentage of increase is concerned, because we have added so many people to the mailing list in 1984. Uh, you know, our mailing list went up, I think January we were something like 13,000, and we have more than doubled that now already, uh, running something like, I think, our last mailing of the, plane, of the uh, Watch Magazine, what's just now going out, is something in the neighborhood of 28,000. So, by the way, it gets in the mail on Monday. The little ice storm slowed everything down in Dallas. It didn't get out last week. It will be in the mail on Monday. There are a few copies of the magazine floating around. I don't know if there are any uh, in the office. Are there somewhere somebody could take a look at them? Oh, they have them on the stand out there. So after services, you can have a look at the stands and pick up your copy if you'd like, although your copy is really going to be mailed to you. Uh, but nevertheless, I know you would like to take a look at what's coming in the upcoming Watch Magazine, which is out. Now we get to go to work on the spring issue. So start right behind the other one. You, I'm beginning to now understand that it really wasn't just money that kept us from publishing that magazine once a month. Uh, it's taken just about all we could do to get this one ready as soon as we've gotten it ready after the last one. We went right to work on it right away, uh, and it's just taken this long for us to get it out. So we will be working on the next one immediately and hope to get it out in due course. And maybe as we get good at it, we'll work our way down to a uh, bi-monthly bi magazine and then hopefully down to a monthly magazine uh, as fast as God gives us the resources to do it. I understand they had about 553 phone calls. I heard one a minute ago, bound to be 554 by now or better. And uh, so things are going well on that today. We really do appreciate all of you who are uh, volunteering, uh, Mr. Mitchell mentioned to me this morning that uh, that old Leo DeBry back here has missed one time in all the time we've been having this phone time. We really do appreciate that loyalty and that kind of, of dependability. We're really, really sorry you missed that one day, Leo. You know, it, uh, we, we could have given you a gold star. <laughs> Try to find somebody that was lost, I guess. Okay, well, we, we understand. So anyway, we do appreciate that, and we're glad to uh, see things moving along so well. We're still getting, you know, averaging, I think, over 1,000 people a week being added to the mailing list, and all of us are very encouraged by it. It is, of course, producing more and more work. It seems to me like my little folder of uh, letters that people write in questions that they'd like to have answers for is getting thicker all the time or getting thick faster, maybe I should say, and having to spend a little bit more time answering letters, and it seems like Ian is getting a little looking where he looks a little harried sometimes in there trying to keep up with all the mail coming through. And uh, 
I think every once in a while the gals in the computer department are ready to shoot him because he keeps bringing all those envelopes in there for them to do something with. So there's a lot going on, and things are sort of creeping up on us as far as being able to keep up with all of our work, but we are still doing just fine. The title of today's sermon is How Many Ways? How many ways are there to be saved? Have you ever given that any consideration? Fact is, this is this the concept that I'm going to be going in today is one of the most important, basic, fundamental concepts to understanding the New Testament, to understanding the Bible, really as a whole, to understanding the plan of God. And the failure to understand what I'm going to be talking about today has led to untold amount of confusion in some people's minds about what God is doing, and their relationship with God even has been distorted by not understanding how many ways there are to be saved. Is there, for example, a way for Christians and another for Buddhists? The truth is that there are a lot of people in this world who believe that most of us in the world are all going to heaven by different routes. I believe when they asked uh, George Burns playing the part of God in the movie, Oh God, you know, if Jesus was his son, he said, yes, Jesus was my son, and Buddha was my son, and Muhammad was my son, and all that implying that all these religions represent ways to God, but just different roads to God. Well, are there many ways? Is there one way for Catholics and another way for Baptists? Is there one way for children and another way for adults? Because there are many people who believe that children who die before they reach the age of accountability should take the short circuit, as it were, to heaven or paradise. They go directly to be with God. Whereas, you know, once you have become an adult, if you have sinned, then you must go through a different way of salvation. You must be baptized and repent, whereas children do not have to do that. Is there one way for Jews and another way for Gentiles? Do Jews have a way of salvation as opposed to the way the Gentiles are saved? Uh, was there one way of salvation in the Old Testament and another way of salvation in the New? What is the difference between the way of salvation in Old Testament times and the way of salvation in the New? Do you know? Is there an inferior way of salvation and a better way of salvation? In other words, are there two ways in the sense of one not being quite as good as the other? This will work, but there is a better way. Now, you can approach this subject from a lot of different directions, but just first off the bat, does it, does it make sense to you that God would have one way of salvation for people living west of the Jordan River and another way of salvation for people living east of the Jordan River. Here's the great God who created all men upon the face of the earth, who has an object in a mind, who has a plan that he is working on. He's looking down at people who are divided by a river between them. You and I could stand there and look at people on both sides of the river and be hard put to figure out why this group over here, or that there's any difference at all. That one were Jewish and one were Arab would never, you know, we would not be able to tell which was which. If you put them in a police lineup, all of them wearing the same sort of clothes. They look very, very much the same. Would God have one way of salvation for one of these groups of people and a different way of salvation for the other because of, say, geographical location? Would God have one way of salvation for people who lived before the Passover in 31 A.D. and a different way of salvation for people living after the Passover in 31 A.D.? A totally different route to God at that time. Would he have one way of salvation for those who had a foreskin and another way of salvation for those who had had the foreskin removed? Now, logically, you would tend to want to say to that, no, that doesn't make sense to me. I really don't think that God would work that way. But what does the Bible say? I want you to turn back with me to the 12th chapter of Exodus, and let's start taking a little look at what God's Word has to say about the subject. 
Did God in olden times have one way of salvation for the Gentiles and another way of salvation for the Jews? Exodus, the 12th chapter, and we're going to begin reading in verse 43. Now, we're talking here about the Passover. God has given Moses all the instruction regarding the the killing of a lamb on the 14th day of the first month and the taking of the blood and sprinkling it and you know, putting it on the doorpost the lentil. He's told them how the lamb is to be prepared, when it is to be prepared, how it's to be eaten, how they're supposed to be dressed, and all, all the rigmarole that goes along with the Passover. All of the instructions have been given. And in verse 43, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. There shall no stranger eat thereof. Now, that seems to imply that God made a difference. But if you just take a good close look at that, you'll realize, wait a minute, this isn't saying that there's one way of salvation for the other, one and one for the other. What it is saying is that the Jew is in and the stranger is out. Because the truth to tell, God had made no offers to the remainder of the world at this time as far as we know. In other words, was salvation even extended to people who live, quote, across the Jordan? or over into Mesopotamia, or some other part of the world. Did they even know who God was? But go on. He says, But every man's servant that is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, he can eat thereof. A foreigner and a hired servant shall not eat thereof. In one house shall it be eaten. You shall not carry forth any of the flesh abroad of the house. You are not to break a bone of it. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. Now, when a stranger sojourns with you, he's living in your borders, he's come into Israel to do business or whatever, He's bought himself a piece of land, or he's leased it for the 50-year period of the Jubilee, and he's gotten ready to build him a house on it. He says, look, I love this God of yours. I'm coming to know him, and I, I know that he is God. I know that he is the only God, and I want to worship him, and I want to keep the Passover with you. If he shall sojourns with you, and he will keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as one that is born in the land, no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. One law shall be to him that is homeborn and to the stranger that sojourns among you. Now that phrase, that last verse, verse 49, is very, very important. Because right from the very beginning of Israel's existence as a people, God, in the process of revealing the way that he wanted to be worshipped by these people, and the time and the place and all the circumstances of the worship, he said, now if... A stranger decides that he loves me, that he wants to worship me, that he wants to keep the Passover to me, then he may be circumcised and he may keep it, and there will be not two, but one law for the homeborn and for the stranger. What is this telling us? It telling us is that there is, prior to Christ, even prior to the time when Moses was given all the law, there was one way to approach God, and one only. He did not have one way for Moses and the Israelites in Egypt, and another way for people who might come to meet him over in Mesopotamia or down in South America or wherever else it might be. For as I said before, chances are those people knew nothing of God beyond seeing creation and being aware of the existence, perhaps, of one God somewhere, somehow, sometime. But salvation? Were they granted salvation? Was Israel granted salvation? Well, we're going to see, yes, indeed, salvation was extended to Israel, contrary to what some people seem to think. Salvation was extended to Israel, and it was extended to them in a certain way, and the only way of salvation was that way. We already we saw some little time ago about a man named Cornelius, who was a Gentile, 
He was a centurion of the Italian band of Caesar's armies who had come to know God, was a man of prayer and a man of alms and a man accepted by God. But he was accepted by God within the general purview of the nation and the community of Israel, that one way of worship, that one way of obedience, that one way of salvation, not some other way. So we can see that right from the very beginning, God had one law for him that was homeborn and one law for the stranger. It was all the same. There was no distinction in the way they worship or approach God. How did it differ in the New Testament? I want you to turn back to Acts, the 15th chapter, where the question was raised first. <clears throat> Peter, of course, had had some questions about it. And God gave him the answer and showed him what he wanted to do relative to taking the gospel to Gentiles. But even having done this, there were still a few questions that were bound to be raised from time to time. And indeed, they were. In the 15th chapter of Acts, certain men went down to Antioch from Judea. They began to teach the brethren and say, Unless you are circumcised after the manner of Moses... You cannot be saved. Now, they understood that there was to be one way of salvation, but they didn't have everything quite straight in their mind as far as what that way involved and what was required within that way. Now, they went down to Jerusalem to discuss the matter. Everyone was together, and everyone went over the whole thing. In verse 6, verse six the apostles and the elders came together to consider the matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said to the men and brethren, you know how a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knows the hearts, bore them witness, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did to us. And he put no difference between us and them. What did that say? What did I just read? What I read is that God bore witness to Peter about the Gentiles, and he said that God put no difference between us and them. Was there one way of salvation for Jew and another for the Gentile? No, not according to Peter. He said, purifying their hearts by faith. Okay, then how was Peter's heart purified? How was that of the others? Now, therefore, why tempt you God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. How are we to be saved? Through the grace of Jesus Christ. Notice, though, that what Peter is saying is, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we Jews shall be saved even as they Gentiles shall be saved. And so Peter stands before the assembled church in Jerusalem, all the apostles and all the elders there, and declares plainly that there is one way of salvation for Jew and Gentile. There is no distinction in God's eyes in the way of salvation for these people. Now, let's pass on down to Ephesians, the second chapter, because this is really one of the most important from understanding, essentially, what salvation is all about. The second chapter of Ephesians is a beautiful scripture. The whole chapter is, uh, is, is very profound in its implications. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, the Ephesian church is a Gentile church. And Paul writes to them as, as though they were all Gentiles, although I'm reasonably sure there were probably some Jews who were present in the area and who were also a part of that church. He says, You has he quickened who were dead, that is you Gentiles, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, 
according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath just like everyone else. Notice we all, Jews, Gentiles, the whole bunch of us, had our lifestyle among, you know, following around the prince of the power of the air, doing the things that the disobedient in this world do. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ, by grace are you saved, and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now that is a, a beautiful scripture when we understand it, what well, all that it means and all of its implications. But it's also very important from another direction. Because what Paul is telling us here is that salvation is this way for a very fundamental reason. It is by grace, through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. So he is implying, is he not, that if salvation were of works, then man might boast. That follows. Therefore, if salvation prior to the death of Jesus Christ were by works, then those men who achieved salvation would have something of which they might boast. Might they not? Paul is telling you something very important about the fundamental nature of salvation. Because you see, salvation is not a matter of earning a religious reward. I don't know if you understand that or not. There is a reward. And there is a reward which can be earned in God's kingdom, but that reward is not salvation. Salvation is a matter of reaching out to a human being who has sinned, who is in need, who is cut off from God and without hope and is lost in the world, and reaching out and rescuing that person from where he is. His way of life, his pattern, what he can accomplish, has served only to get him in trouble. Salvation is a rescue effort. It's a saving. It's a pulling back. It is a forgiving of all the mistakes and the wrongs that a person has ever done. Now, there was never a law given that could forgive sins. If there were, there would have been no need for Jesus to die at all. Because if you saw yourself in trouble and you knew that you had earned a penalty because of your sins, and someone laid out before you a regimen of things that you could do, if it took so many animals, if it took uh, so many good works, if it took get, get, taking food to Ethiopia, if it took whatever, to, you would set to work and do those things. In fact, in some cases, you might find that easier to do than some of the things that God really does require of you. The humility, the crushed and broken spirit, the heartfelt cry of repentance and the asking of forgiveness and the willingness to have God come into you and, 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 and take control of your life. Sometimes those things they sound, may sound easy. But they're not as easy as they sound. To buy some indulgences, perhaps, as they, which was a custom at one time in the Catholic Church, to uh, go down to the temple and make offerings of animals, or to send food offerings somewhere else, or to go through certain penance to get rid of the, the guilt that a person might carry. 
By grace are you saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man, and it's true of Jew or Gentile or New Testament man or Old Testament man or anyone else, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. In other words, there is a, a right way. And the law is given to man to define right and wrong. It's to say this is right and this is wrong. It's to tell us this is the right way to worship God. This is the wrong way to worship God. This way will draw you nearer to God and help you to understand his plan. This way will confuse you and cause you to forget God's plan and to go after another God and another God's ways. Don't worship me this way. Worship me this way. Don't treat your neighbor this way. Treat your neighbor this way. That's all the law is all about. It is all it has ever been about. It's all it was about in the Old Testament, and it's all it's about today, and it holds out nothing for you in salvation. The violation of the law can only take your salvation away from you. It cannot give it to you. Sin persisted in can cost you your salvation. But you can't get rid of sin by any amount of obedience or any amount of law-keeping or pursuit of law. That is a simple biblical principle. It is that way. It has always been that way. Now, he goes on to say, Wherefore, remember that you, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, you were strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It's a desperate strait. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off, are made near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Now, as I pointed out before, there was a wall in the temple. There was a gate and a sign over that gate in Jesus' day. In that day, that sign said that any Gentile who passes this point shall be responsible for his own death, which will immediately ensue. In other words, it was an area, a middle wall. Jews could go beyond it. Gentiles could not. And beyond that wall, there was another wall, and there was separated a court of the women. And Israelitish men could go beyond that wall, and women could not. So they had this segmenting of everything on the top of the temple. And it becomes very important later when Paul begins to tell people there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither male nor female, and there is neither bond nor free in Christ. And you must understand the divisions that had existed in that society at that time before you will understand sometimes what Paul is saying to all of the people. And the divisions were created not by God and not by God's law, but by men, in particular Jewish men, Jewish rabbis who had constructed a whole list of do's and don'ts and what have you, other additional laws that have nothing to do with the law of God. It was their law that prohibited Jews from eating with Gentiles. It was their law that prohibited a Jew from going inside the home of a Gentile and even being able to, to, to uh, walk in there to have. It was a Jewish law that required a, a Jew, if he went out of the room when a Gentile was in his house and he came back in, that all the food in the room had to be discarded and all the utensils washed. That was not God's law. You don't find that anywhere in God's law or the Bible. You find that only in Jewish law. And there was a huge middle wall of partition erected by the Jews between Jews and Gentiles, not erected by God. Now, what he says is he has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. And God's law, you see, had nothing to do with an enmity between Jew and Gentile. 
God's law did nothing to create that. God's law did not bar the Gentiles from the participation in Israel's worship. A Gentile could be circumcised and do anything the Jews could do. He was allowed to come into the temple. He was allowed to worship God in any, in any way he saw fit, as the Jews were. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments in ordinances. Now, if he had been meaning to say that the law of God was done away with, or that the law was done away with, he just said having abolished the law. He said having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments in ordinances, and he's referring to those ordinances that created the enmity. And those ordinances that created the enmity were what? You can't go into a Gentile's home. You cannot eat with a Gentile. You're not supposed to touch a Gentile. You're not supposed to have them into your home. If they do come into your home, you're not to leave them alone in a room. They will defile you. That's where that enmity came from. Not from God. Now, was there one way of salvation then for the Gentile? What we're going to have is the church began to develop in the years to come a synagogue for the Gentiles and a synagogue for the Christians, the Gen Jewish Christians. Was the church going to divide up in towns along lines of Jew and Gentile? That's what it really boiled down to. And it could have happened very easily. And it could have all focused right on the Passover, couldn't it? Because if the Passover had remained unchanged in any way whatsoever, the entire church, Jewish and Gentile, could not have gotten together at the Passover because of the circumcision rule. But you see, they had no problem getting together for the Lord's Supper. For with the Lord's Supper, there is no circumcision rule. Read on. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments in ordinances, or dogmason as the Greek is, for to make in himself of two, that is the Jews and the Gentiles, one new man, so making peace, that he might, might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. What he is saying is all of this garbage that has built up over the years, this superiority that has separated Jew and Gentile, this supposed superiority, is gone. And we're not going to have a, Jew, a, a, a Jewish Christian church and a Gentile Christian church. There will be one church and one church only composed of both Jew and Gentile. If you suppose there could have been one set of practices then among the Gentiles and another set of practices among the Jews in the church, doesn't seem possible. doesn't even seem reasonable that it would. He went on to say, And then he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to them that were near. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building, fitly framed together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also you are built together for an habitation of God through the Holy Spirit. Now, one thing you are left with emphatically, regardless of what particular uh, set of doctrines you might believe, is that the entire church worshipped God, served God, achieved salvation one way. Right? One way of salvation, not two, not three, not four, just one way, and that is all that there was. Now, how does the New Testament in this situation differ from the Old Testament? In other words, God obviously showed Israel that there, you know, what sort of salvation 
they were going to be. Now, I want to go back, first of all, to uh, Acts, the 15th chapter again, because there was something there that I did not emphasize before. Beginning in verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore them, that is the Gentiles, witness, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did to us. And he put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt you God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Now, that is interesting, isn't it? If we're talking about law-keeping as a way of salvation in Old Testament times, then Peter is saying nobody made it. Simple terms. He says neither we, those of us Jews wandering around here, we're all here, none of us have been able to bear it, whatever it is he's talking about. Our fathers were not able to bear it. Now why are you trying to put it on the Gentiles that they would bear it? Is that what he's saying? That this was a way of salvation? The thing falls apart if you approach it that way. Because the truth was, in Old Testament times, the way of salvation was not through the law. The law was never given for the purpose of salvation. It wasn't designed for salvation. It cannot grant salvation. Not then, not now, not ever. What's he talking about then? What he's talking about is a group of people who are trying to say that through obedience to the law you can achieve forgiveness of your sins. In other words, justification by works rather than justification by faith. And what Peter says is, you're trying to put this yoke of justification by works upon the Gentiles. And we weren't justified that way. And our fathers weren't justified that way. And why are you trying to tell the Gentiles they have to be justified that way? The Scripture is important because it tells you that in Old Testament times, they weren't justified by works either. Just like you're not justified, that is, forgiven of past sins by works. It's not possible. It's not even in the, the realm of things. It's not even in the, within the room of, of things that are difficult but can be done. It is utterly and completely impossible to achieve justification by the law, for the law was not designed for that purpose. It was only designed to reveal to man. Turn back to Romans, the third chapter. Romans chapter 3, and verse 20, and we'll show you a little bit more clearly what we mean about this way of salvation in the Old Testament. Interesting that I would turn to the New Testament to show you what salvation was like in the Old. Here it is. Therefore, chapter 3, verse 20, By the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, you want to be sure and mark that scripture, keep it in your mind, because it is absolutely fundamental to understanding the law. If you don't understand this verse, you're just not going to understand the law. You're not going to understand the role of the law or anything else in the church. By the deeds of the law. Now, what law are we talking about? Some people say, well, deeds means ergon, and it means, therefore, by, by sacrifices and rituals and all that sort of thing. Well, perhaps, but that requires an interpretation that's not even necessary in this case. Because the fact of the matter is that you do not achieve justification by keeping the Sabbath. You know, if you've broken the Sabbath in the past, that's, that's, that's bad, and, 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 and you've incurred sin as a result. All right. Now you start keeping the Sabbath, and that's good. But it does absolutely nothing about the Sabbath breaking you did in the past. You know, you're lying in the past. You lied to several people. Okay, you decided I was wrong. I've quit lying. I'm not going to tell the truth from now on. Okay, fine. That's good. But it doesn't do anything about the lies you told in the past. They're still back there somewhere behind you. And they may one of these days catch up with you, as a matter of fact. So, in other words, the law, whether it be the Ten Commandments or statutes or judgments or rituals, doesn't do that. It says, by the deeds of the law. Any law. Take your pick. 
shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Why is this? Well, because the purpose of the law is the knowledge of sin. God gave it to you so you'd know the difference between right and wrong, not so that you could get rid of your wrongs. That's got to be done another way, and that other way is the way of salvation for you and for me and for everyone who has ever lived. But now the righteousness of God, apart from, as it should be, the law, is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by the faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Aha, there's a word for you. There is no difference for everyone that believes, all and all. Now, is that new, though? Is that something that's that way now, and it wasn't that way before? He then goes on to say, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's no man who has ever lived who has not incurred that guilt. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of them which believe in Jesus. That's faith. It is that faith in Jesus, that confidence in him, that acceptance of him, that gets rid of your sin and that saves you, that justifies you and puts you right with God. It's not keeping the law. Now, that's very clear, isn't it? You said the righteousness of God without the law, apart from the law. Put the law over here. Here is the way we get righteousness with God. It's another way. It is through Jesus Christ. All right, that's clear. But is that something new? He goes on to say in verse 27, Where is boasting then? Well, it's excluded. By what law? Of works? Oh, no, it's excluded by the law of faith. You've got to achieve salvation by faith, and therefore you can't brag about what you have accomplished before God. So we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Okay, clear enough, I understand that. A man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is that something new, though, in Paul's day? Is he not the God of the Jews? Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Well, yes. He's the God of the Gentiles, seeing it is one God who shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. How is the Jew justified? By faith. How is the Gentile justified? By faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Oh, God forbid. We establish the law. Paul said, I'm not, look, I'm not trying to get rid of the law. Please understand me. What I'm trying to do is to put the law in its place. I'm trying to get you to where you understand the difference between, let's say, the law being required for salvation or saving you somehow, as, as opposed to your being saved by faith in Jesus Christ. The law is required for obedience. Faith in Christ is required for salvation. Now, obedience is a factor in salvation, for Christ isn't going to save a disobedient person, is he? You can't be just even claim to be repentant if you are still disobedient. But you see, the, the, the proclaiming of and the defining of disobedience is the role of the law. The forgiving of disobedience for the repentance is the role of Christ, of grace, which comes to you because you believe him, because you trust him, because you accept him. That's where it comes from. Do we make void the law through faith? Oh, my, no. We establish the law, for if it weren't for the law... You wouldn't even need the faith for salvation. There's nothing to save if it weren't for the law. What shall we say then 
that Abraham our father has pertained to flesh found. Here's the question again. Is this idea of justification by faith new? If Abraham were justified by works, he has something to glory of, wouldn't he? Well, sure, he could be proud of himself. If he had enough works to achieve salvation, he could pat himself on the back for it. But you can't do that before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, to him that works, the reward is not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that doesn't work, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Is this new? Well, of course it's not new. That's the way Abraham was justified. Is that far enough back? You know, do we need to go further before someone will believe that from the beginning, salvation, by definition and justification, has been by faith and by the grace of God, by his forgiveness and his extending the unmerited favor and pardon to a man because the man believed him. It started with Abraham, and it's continued through all the way through Isaac and through Jacob. It was true of Moses. It was true of David. It was true of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And if you're going to be saved, it also would be true of you. The same way of salvation for every man who has ever lived and every woman. He then goes on to say, To him that works is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. But to him that works not but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness without works. Basically, that means apart from. It doesn't mean that you can do anything you please and, and, and be counted righteous before God. You understand that. But it means that the act of justifying is apart from, separate from, and, you know, your works. That your works do not achieve it or bring it about. They may be considered by God as evidence of your repentance, but they are not instrumental in carrying out your accomplishing your forgiveness. That is something God does even when you do not deserve it. David understood it. He said, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Beautiful concept. David had maybe more reason than a lot of people to understand it and to appreciate it. He was a sinner. And he was a, a mighty sinner, if that's the term to use before God. And he recognized it so clearly. And it's hard sometimes when you read the life of David and you read how wicked he got at times to see him as a man after God's own heart. But he is the, the, one of the best examples a person could ever point to of the truth of what I'm saying. That in the Old Testament, salvation was not a matter of reward or of what you earned or of works because David didn't do the right works. Salvation for him was the grace, the unmerited favor and pardon of God that God gave him for the simple reason that David really did believe God. Really did. Man, when he looked out across the field at Goliath out there, he says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? God will, will, will bless the man that goes out to meet him in the name of the Lord. Doubt did not even cross his mind. He believed God implicitly, explicitly, in every other way that one could believe God. And he put his, you know, his, his faith right out on the line. Actually took his stuff in his hand, went wandering out in the field, and faced God's enemy right head on. There was no doubt about his belief. It was evident in the things that he did. You know, this is what James talks about. He said, well, show me your faith by your works. David did. David got his sling and his rocks and selected them carefully and went right out in the field to meet the man. He believed. Of that, there can never be any doubt. Then Paul asks in verse 9, 
Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcision only? Or does it come upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham. We, we remember we, we said that Abraham got righteousness by faith, didn't we? Okay. How was it reckoned? When he was in circumcision or uncircumcision? Well, if your history is good, you'll remember that actually this was said of Abraham, and this righteousness was granted to him before Abraham was circumcised, before that covenant was given. He received the sign or the token of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, even though they are not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. In other words, circumcision for Abraham was a following through. It was an obedience thing that he did. And it was done because God said so. But it was also a, an outward sign of a physical covenant that God made with him and all of his descendants. And Abraham said, yes, Lord, and did what he was told. But he was also the father of righteousness to the uncircumcision as well. He says to, to the father of the circumcision, to them who are of the, un, of the circumcision only, but also those who walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be heir of the world was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Beautiful concept. Plain, clear, easy to understand. The promise did not come to him through the law. Salvation does not come to you through the law. It doesn't come to you through the Ten Commandments. It doesn't come to you through uh, the, the sacrifices and the rituals. It doesn't come to you through tithing. It doesn't come to you through holy days. It comes to you through the unmerited favor, the grace of God, through faith. The other side of the equation is obedience, not faith. You show faith by obedience, but the obedience itself is not faith. Because there are a lot of things a person can do that are obedient to God's law without ever having one iota of faith. Take a look at the Pharisees. There's a classic example of people who were very meticulous in the observance of the law, but they had no faith. The law without faith will get you nowhere. Faith, coupled with disobedience, doesn't exist. It's a contradiction in terms. The man of faith will obey God, but the man who keeps the law may have no faith whatever. So, this is all laid out, I think, very clearly for us to understand that it was the faith of Abraham that God made no difference. Now, again, how many saviors are there, or can there possibly be? How many are there that might come to the fore to save a person who needed saving? Turn back to the 10th chapter of John. John chapter 10 and verse 1. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, he that enters not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. He that enters in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter opens, the sheep hear his voice, he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. He is establishing here some concepts that everyone needs to understand about this question of how many ways of salvation are there. You know, can you be saved over here apart from Jesus Christ? How many saviors are there? Is Buddha a savior? Is, is Muhammad a savior? Is, who's a, who are the saviors? Of the world. Now, when he puts forth his own sheep, he goes before them. The sheep follow him before, because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger. They will flee from him, for they don't know the voice of strangers. This parable spoke Jesus to them, but they understood not what things they were which he spoke to them. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. Not a door, the door. 
all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But my sheep did not hear them. Anyone who came along before him who, and other than him who claimed to be the doorway of the sheep or claimed to be the true shepherd, he says, is a thief and a robber. That shows you how Jesus saw the idea of how many saviors there could be. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come but to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He that is a hireling, you know, he's got a salary, he's getting paid for it. And not the shepherd who who, to whose own the sheep are not. He doesn't own them. He's not responsible for them. If they die, he doesn't lose that much. He sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and cares not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Then comes this rather enigmatic and rather interesting expression. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. What he's talking about here are the Gentiles. This fold basically means the Jews, the group of people to whom he was here now talking. Other sheep have I that are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Isn't that a beautiful concept? I'm not going to have people scattered all over the place. That is, in a sense, they may be geographically scattered. But I'm not going to have them philosophically, doctrinally, morally, uh, and spiritually scattered. I'm not going to have people being saved one way over here and people being saved another way over here. I have other sheep now that are not of this fold. I mean, they're not with this particular group, but they're my sheep. And sooner or later, I'm going to bring them together and there's going to be one fold and one shepherd. Not a lot of different people, a lot of different saviors coming along to try to save people. Turn back to the fourth chapter of Acts. Acts chapter 4 and uh, verse 11. This is Peter speaking. He says, This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other. Now, on the one hand, you have Jesus. And anywhere else, you have other. And he said, This Jesus is the stone that you all didn't pay any attention to. Neither is there salvation in any other. How many ways of salvation? How many shepherds are there? How many saviors are there? One. Who is he? He said, For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, he didn't have you know, one way for the Jews, another way for the Gentiles. It's one way. And he didn't have some salvation in some other religion or some other approach or by some other way in the Old Testament. There was one way. If people in the Old Testament were to be saved, they were to be saved through Jesus Christ. For there is no other name. But what about those poor people? Did they not know that name somehow? Turn back to Isaiah 43. The truth is that the expression Savior is used many, many times in the Old Testament. In fact, just about as many times in the Old Testament as it is in the New. Many overlook that particular point. In Isaiah 43, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord that created you, O Jacob, and he that formed you, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed you, I have called you by my name, you are mine. 
When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they will not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon you. For I am the Lord your God. The word Yahweh for Lord is pronounced Jehovah by the Jehovah's Witnesses. They have a surprisingly good case for the use of the word Jehovah, I found when I read one of their booklets recently. I am, you might say, Jehovah your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now, do you recall what the name Jesus means? Of course, you know that it's a Greek word, or actually an English word taken from the Greek word Jesus, and that the Greek word is taken from the Hebrew word Yahshua, which, of course, we pronounce, generally speaking, Joshua. But the word means Savior. Do you realize that you could even conceivably translate this, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Jesus? For indeed, that's what Jesus means. His Savior. That this one who was speaking this, I am Jehovah, I am Yahweh, your God, your Savior. Now the word Savior is the same word that we find in the New Testament for the one who we call Jesus. And the truth to tell, it is in fact the same person. Since he said, you were precious in my sight, you have been honorable, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not. I am with you. I'll bring your seed from the east. I'll bring you back here together. And finally, he says down in verse 10, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed. There's not going to be any God formed after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Now, you see, if Jesus were a different Savior, that wouldn't be true. But the fact is that Jesus is the same Savior of whom we are reading right here. Who was the Savior? Turn back to John, the 14th chapter. John 14, a very familiar passage of Scripture. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Verse 2, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Whither I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we possibly know the way? Now, this, the way is always singular. You know, it's never even a hint that there are a lot of different routes that a person could go down. And Jesus said to him, I am the way the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Who? You know, when he talks about the way being narrow, you know, and the path being right, straight, narrow, difficult, the way in the kingdom of God, he's being very specific. Because the truth to tell is the only way to the Father is through that very narrow spot where Jesus Christ is. He is the way, the truth, the life, and the only Savior, and the only way to the Father. There is no other. You could not go off over here, let's say, and find the law, and find your way to God, and to His kingdom, and to salvation, without going through Jesus Christ. Oh, you might be able to be blessed for obedience to the law. You might be able to pray and have a prayer heard by God because of your obedience to the law. You may go a long way, frankly, with the law, for the law is good and righteous, and holy, and it reveals all about God's way of life to you. But it's God's way of living, not God's way of salvation. The way of salvation is through Jesus Christ and Him alone. No other way. And, of course, that way is also for the obedient. I don't want to downplay that in any way, shape, form, or fashion. 
but Jesus Christ is the way. There isn't one way for the Gentiles, another way for the Jews. There isn't one way for people in the New Testament, a different way for people in the Old Testament. For the truth to tell, the way to God in Old Testament times was through the same Savior that you and I go through. Turn back to 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, for proof of that. 1 Corinthians, chapter 10. Very simple and very straightforward statement. I don't know how a person could ever really misunderstand what it's saying. Chapter 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant how that our fathers were under the cloud. They all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and the sea. They did all eat that same spiritual meat, and they did all drink that same spiritual meat. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. They drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Who was with Israel in the wilderness? Christ. Who was it that stepped up, you know, on the Mount, Mount Sinai and his actual finger reached out and touched rock and the rock seared and burned and, and carved in that rock with his finger ten words to lay out that beautiful ten commandments which you and I today revere so, so much. Who was it? It was Christ. He was the one who walked every step of the way with them. He was in the pillar of fire. He was in the pillar of smoke. He was the one who gave them manna. He was the one who gave them the Ten Commandments. He was the one who told them all about tithing. He was the one that told them about the holy days. He was the one who gave them the whole shooting match. It was Jesus Christ. And he didn't give it to them as a way of salvation. No, 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 no. They were saved, if they were saved at all, by grace, through faith, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and all the prophets, like you and like me and like Peter, James and John and like Paul, all of us were saved by faith in Christ. They didn't know him by that name. They knew him by a slightly different name, but they knew him as their Savior. And in that sense, they did indeed know him by exactly the same name that you and I know him by, if they knew him as Savior. John, the first chapter, is perhaps one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament, I think. The way that it all develops and, and the, the truths that are laid out here for us are astonishing to say the least. The first time I read this with understanding was sometime in the late 50s, and it, 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 it was really revolutionary in my understanding of the Bible. I never had really quite grasped some things before until I read this. In the beginning was the Word, that is the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, it's very difficult for a person to grasp that, because normally, if you are with something, the something that you are with is an other. In other words, you are one, this is other. And you can be with another, but it's hard for you to be with something and to be that something you are with. But this is what he says, that the Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Who? The Word. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness never understood it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light. He was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light that lights every man that comes into the world. He, that is that light, that logos, was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world never knew him. He came to his own, that is his own people, the Jews, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but are born 
of God. And the Word was made flesh. Do you realize what this is saying? It is saying that God became and was made flesh. Now, you're flesh. Your children are flesh. We are all flesh and blood people. We can't walk through walls. We sometimes try to walk through plate glass doors with rather dire effects. But, you know, we, we're kind of limited. Great God Almighty became flesh. The one that was, was in, the, in the beginning, from the beginning, that was God and was with God, became flesh. The one who created the world became flesh. We tend to think in terms of the Father, the great supreme being creating the world. No, no, no. It was the one that became flesh that created the world, and the one that became flesh spoke to the Father in prayer while he was here. It's astonishing when you understand that. And he goes on to say, John bore witness of him, verse 15, and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spoke. He that comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. His fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. Well, pray tell, who did they deal with? They dealt with Jesus Christ. And they knew him as Savior, which means they knew him as Jesus. Because that's what his name means, his Savior. He was the one that was with them in the wilderness. He's the one that gave them water out of the rock to drink. He's the one that gave them quail to eat. He's the one that put manna on the brush in the morning. He's the one that gave all the law, all the statutes, all the judgments, even the ones that make us downright uncomfortable. He's the one. And they weren't saved by those laws then any more than we could ever be saved by them now. For the law was not given for salvation, but to define right from wrong and to tell people the right way to worship God and the wrong way to worship God. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. You and I would know nothing of the Father if Jesus Christ had not revealed the Father to us. It's interesting, as you go back and you take your concordance out and look for the word Father in the Old Testament, and you'll find that almost universally it is used of human fathers. The concept of a heavenly Father is extremely limited, almost unknown, until Jesus Christ comes on the scene and all of a sudden man understands that he has a heavenly Father. Salvation is not and never has been a matter of works of law. Not now, not in Paul's day, and, and more important perhaps, not in Moses' day. Salvation is and always has been by the grace of God through faith. Always has been. Salvation is and always has been through Jesus Christ alone, not through any other. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and all the rest will be in the kingdom of God but they will be there through Jesus Christ. The law was defined, given, as I said, to define right and wrong, good and evil. It's to say this, there is a right way to live your life. There is a right and a wrong way to worship God. There are many ways to break the law, to become a sinner. But there is and always has been only one way to be saved.